This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. Today is Thursday, June 10th. Inflation is up, the Keystone Pipeline is down, and we're focused on hacking the hackers. Earlier this week, the U.S. Justice Department announced that it had traced and recovered most of the Bitcoin that had been paid by Colonial Pipeline to Russian ransomware gang Darkside, following last month's hack that had shut down gasoline supplies to much of the East Coast. It was a fairly stunning development, given that a big reason hackers demand cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is that they consider them to be hard to trace and thus hard for law enforcement to recover, certainly more so than a bag of hundreds left in a dark alley. Two things to know. First, the price of Bitcoin plummeted between the time of the hack and the recovery. So even though Colonial Pipeline got most of its Bitcoin back, it still lost over $1 million. Two, we don't actually know exactly how the feds trace the Bitcoin, but we do know that all Bitcoin transactions, even ransoms, are recorded in something called the blockchain otherwise known as a public ledger. That's not quite like a bank teller's ledger with names and addresses, but it does provide what former federal prosecutor Katie Hahn calls digital breadcrumbs. The big question now is what all of this means for future ransomware attacks, particularly as they seem to be becoming more prevalent. Remember, since Colonial Pipeline, there have been hacks of the New York City Transit System, meat producer JBS, and the Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket Ferries in Massachusetts. And those are just the hacks that have been disclosed. So for answers and deeper insights, we want to speak with Gervis Grigg, a 23-year veteran of the FBI who now works at Chainalysis, a company that helps governments and financial institutions engage with cryptocurrencies. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Gervis Grigg, global public sector CTO at Chainalysis. So Gervis, you worked at the FBI for 23 years At what point did your law enforcement work begin to intersect with cryptocurrencies? That happened most recently, although cryptocurrencies had a role in many of our cases going back almost since their origins. Probably if you look back into the early 2010s, 2013s, really started hearing that mentioned in cases far more prominently. Cryptocurrency early in its life was viewed as a black market sort of thing, a thing for money laundering, a thing for for hackers. Now it's in kind of this asset class for the wealthiest investors. From your perch, what does that evolution look like? Yeah, so it's an interesting thing to look at the emergence of a completely new asset class and see how that really has penetrated the financial markets. And when you look at how the growth in cryptocurrencies has expanded from you know the few hundreds of millions to then billions to then tens of billions and now into the trillions of dollars a year, it's really fascinating to see how that really has expanded, as you said. And, and of course, there's that belief in the mind some of of still that cryptocurrency is used by criminals in rogue states. And that just simply is not true. When you say it's not true, but it is the thing that hackers, ransomware hackers, for example, do request, correct? Yes. Let me be clear. When I say that it is 
in the minds of some believe that it's just for their use or that the majority of cryptocurrency transaction is used by criminals in rogue states. That part is not true. However, it is true that criminals in rogue states do utilize cryptocurrency as a way to transfer wealth and, and be paid for their illicit activities. So as a part of that, you know, when there is, say, a ransomware attack and there's a crypto request, what kind of insights does that provide into how these groups operate? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, I think it's important to remember the principle here that the key to disrupting ransomware is disrupting the ransomware supply chain. So when these type of events happen, you can learn a lot about that supply chain, about how these actors operate. You know, in fact, cryptocurrency is inherently transparent and we can learn a lot about ransomware operations and money laundering techniques through blockchain analysis and how those currencies move through the ecosystem that supports these ransomware attacks. Explain to me, what, what is the ransomware supply chain? So cryptocurrencies operate in these public immutable ledgers, as you know, on the blockchain, which makes them, of course, far more transparent than our traditional forms of value transfer. So using blockchain analysis, we can gain incredible visibility into how these ransomware gangs run their operations. Many strains perhaps function on the model known as ransomware as a service, and that allows these attackers known as affiliates to rent the usage of particularly ransomware strains from their creators or administrators who then exchange, get a cut of that money from each successful attack that these affiliates carry out on their behalf and using the tools that they provide. So that then allows us to see on the blockchain when these ransomware administrators take the ransoms they've been paid in cryptocurrencies and then send portions of that along as commissions to these affiliates and the other partners who maybe provide goods and services, whether it be illicit cloud services in one jurisdiction, it may be their cash out point and their money launders or their mixers in another, or these affiliates who maybe are the ones actually conducting the attacks. And so by following the blockchain, by following these cryptocurrencies, you can unzip the whole ecosystem that supports the event. I think I heard you say ransomware as a service. Is, it, is this something that's talked about kind of within your industry? It is, and that's really where you're seeing the professionalization and the commoditization of this whole process. As opposed to an individual hacker or an individual carrying out a ransomware attack, they now have support infrastructures across the globe where individuals can provide them tools, services, offer infrastructure, sell cloud services where they can put their stolen data. And so now you become this whole industry and it becomes and is colloquially known now as ransomware as a service. One of the reasons that hackers request, say, Bitcoin as opposed to, you know, U.S. dollars, I think is because it's viewed as harder to track. But from what you're telling me, you're almost suggesting to me it's easier to track once it's actually been transferred. Yeah. So actually, the ability to use cryptocurrency as a way to trace these illicit funds empowers governments far easier than, let's say, cash and some other traditional forms of fiat because of the public blockchain. So the easier part for the hackers is really the transfer, right? You know, you don't have to drop a bag of money in an alleyway. It can just be sent. But then once that transfer is done, you're saying it's easier to follow. So the wonderful thing about the blockchain and one of the, the beauties of the public ledger is that these records are permanent. And so even four or six years from now, one can look back and see transactions on the blockchain. And if you know how to analyze that and you have the right data, one can follow those transactions. So is there a fundamental, almost naming flaw here? Because cryptocurrency, the crypto is the encrypted part. If you can, as you say, use the public ledger to analyze where the money or where the, the currency has gone, that doesn't sound terribly encrypted. Well, you think about 
yes, there is encryption associated with the transactions, but the, it's the public ledger aspect of the blockchain that we're talking about here. That's the significant thing to consider. Do you think that the Fed's getting the Bitcoin back from the Colonial Pipeline hack will dissuade future ransomware groups from demanding crypto? Well, possibly. So if you look at other traditional types of crime, criminals have known for a long time that sometimes the law enforcement catches the bad guys, right? And yet that doesn't always dissuade bad guys from carrying out future crime. However, it can have a chilling effect on some types of crime in some parts of the world. So yes, effective law enforcement actions can lead to a reduction in crime and a reduction in future and repeat events. However, Criminals always follow the money. And so where there's an opportunity, they will continue to pursue and exploit vulnerabilities that they may come across. From your perspective right now, what's the state of the arms race between hackers and law enforcement? It's a significant. I mean, you saw the statement by the White House recently about the importance and the threat that ransomware poses. National leaders have compared it to 9-11 and other serious threats that we face before as a nation. When, you know, ransomware can and is demonstrated that can affect the daily lives of the average citizen. And so it's an important and vital thing for the government to an industry to partner together to counteract. On the technology side, who's ahead right now? Are the hackers a step ahead of law enforcement or is law enforcement a step ahead of the hackers? Yeah, I, I don't know that I could actually say. What we do see is a significant rise in the number of ransomware attacks. In fact, it is the fastest growing form of illicit activity involving cryptocurrency. We estimate that ransomware attacks earned more than $400 million in revenue in 2020 alone. And they've earned more than $130 million so far this year that we've been able to identify. So it's definitely on the rise. Gervis, it was interesting to me that when the feds got the ransom back, it was still in Bitcoin. It hadn't been converted into fiat currency. Is it hard to launder cryptocurrencies? Well, it's certainly a process, and different criminals uh, have varying degrees of sophistication. And I don't mean to minimize the efforts that it takes to do the kind of work that you're talking about. It is hard, it is significant, and it takes a lot of technical expertise and, and data. That's why it's so important for governments, agencies, and the like to have the resources and data and tools they need to be able to do that, because it is no small effort, but it is possible, as, as recent events have shown. Gervis, final question for you. What is the legacy of the Colonial Pipeline hack and Bitcoin recovery? I think it's important for people to understand this is not an insurmountable problem. This is not a threat that can't be addressed. The same principles that we've used in addressing other threats in the past can be applied here. It's just in a different domain. It takes awareness. It takes training. It takes data. It takes tools and it takes a whole of government strategy to focus on this threat to eliminate and disrupt the ransomware supply chain throughout these jurisdictions globally. Gervis Grigg of Chainalysis, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the end of the Keystone Pipeline. After developer TC Energy last night said it was pulling the plug, following tons of political back and forth in the U.S., which would have been the ultimate destination for hundreds of thousands of oil barrels per day from Alberta, Canada. The quick history is that TC Canada, which was then known as TransCanada, first proposed the 1,200-mile pipeline in 2010, but it met tons of resistance in the U.S., particularly from indigenous and environmental groups, culminating in President Obama's rejection of the project in 2015. But then President Trump revived Keystone in 2017, 
followed by President Biden blocking it again once he took office. And yeah, that's an exhausting history, which may help explain why TC Canada finally gave up. But one other bottom line from this, organizing made a big impact. Throughout the entire saga, protesters from the Standing Rock tribe and others pushed back hard against Keystone. And those protests influenced at least two presidents' thinking. One other thing we're watching today is inflation, as new data shows that consumer prices grew more over the past year than at any time since 2008. Why it matters is twofold. First, because stuff keeps costing more, particularly energy and used cars. Second, because it could cause additional opposition to President Biden's infrastructure plans, particularly among those who are already concerned that this past year of massive government spending was leading to increased prices. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Singani, and Jeannie Montalvo. Please be sure to leave us a review. And if you're not already following or subscribing to the podcast, do so. Have a great national Ice Tea Day. And Ice Tea is kind of the fourth producer on the show. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode.